Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. Matthew, chapter 27. I'll read verses 33 through 44. Verse 33. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mingled with gall, and after tasting it he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots, and sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And they put up above his head the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe, we shall believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers also who had been crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. We have been studying Jesus, the man of faith, and we have found this theme, particularly from the book of Hebrews, where in chapter 2 and verse 13, Jesus says before his incarnation, I will put my trust in him. And then in verse 17 of that chapter, we read that he had to be made like his brethren in all things. And so we have brought those two truths together, which show us that Jesus, having been made like us in all things. He had to live the life that we live, which included the life of faith in God in heaven as we must live, as we must trust God and his word to guide us in all of life, and we build our faith and hope upon the word and the promises of God, so it must be in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ that he will build his life of faith on the word and promises of God, and he will live in trust in him. Even through all of his trials, sufferings, and afflictions, even to the point of death, he will say, I will put my trust in him. And Jesus is the great pioneer of faith and the greatest man of faith who has ever lived we have seen this from the time of his infancy and through his public ministry and even to his death. And this evening, we continue our study in the faith of Jesus as he comes to the cross. 
Matthew records the scene of the cross here, and the cross itself was the greatest trial of faith in the life of Jesus. We saw this morning the promise of Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14, where the Father promised his Son to give him glory, dominion, and a kingdom. And people from every nation and language would serve and worship him, and he would have an everlasting kingdom. But where are all of these promises now? Where is this dominion? And where is this glory and this kingdom as he hangs upon a cross? And where are people from every nation serving and worshiping him? He was promised eternal life and everlasting kingdom, but he is now sinking down to death by the cross. How could the promises of God ever be fulfilled now? The cross was the greatest trial of the faith of Jesus that there could ever be. But yet Jesus still entrusted himself to his heavenly father, that his heavenly father would fulfill every word. And he lived in faith to the very end, as all believers must do. He died in faith without having received the promises, the fulfillment of the promises. But having seen them and welcomed them from a distance, he still believed in them from the cross and we see here in this scene that Matthew speaks of, we see the tongues of the angry multitude as they are inflamed by the devil on this occasion. At the end of verse 40, they cry out to Jesus, if you are the son of God, then come down from the cross. The same temptation Jesus faced in the beginning of his ministry when the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, then command these stones to become bread. A temptation for him to prove himself the son of God by disobeying his father's will. And here it was his father's will to lay his life down for sinners. Jesus could have easily delivered himself from the cross but there would have been no salvation this was the reason why he came into the world to go to the cross the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many in verse 42 the scribes and the elders mock him they say he saved others he cannot save himself he is the king of Israel a mocking of God's promise that he would be a great king. Look at him now as he hangs upon the cross. Let him come down from the cross, and we shall believe in him. In verse 33, a direct attack upon his trust and his confidence in God. They say he trusts in God. He trusts in God, but look at what he is now, and look at what good his trust in God has done for him as he hangs in shame upon the cross he trusts in God let him deliver him let him deliver him if he takes pleasure in him for he said I am the son of God and so they unwittingly acknowledge that it was true that Jesus was a man of faith who put his 
trust and confidence in God. And then we read in verses 45 and 46, Now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In verse 45, it was broad daylight from the sixth hour, which was twelve noon, when the sun is at its zenith. And suddenly from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land for three hours until the ninth hour. A supernatural darkness. Luke tells us that the sun was obscured. The sun itself did not give its light. And the darkness, there had been darkness over all the land of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his hand, and we are told in the book of Exodus that there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days, and we are told that it was a darkness that could be felt. And should there not be darkness when the Son of God hangs upon the cross? Should there not be darkness when he who is the light of the world is being put to death? Amos prophesied of this darkness in Amos 8 and verse 9. He wrote, And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I shall make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Darkness is the symbol of God's wrath. Darkness is the symbol of his curse and his judgment. Deuteronomy tells us cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And so terrible was the curse for our sin and so heavy was the justice of God poured down upon Jesus that he uttered this desperate cry of dereliction and abandonment. Matthew tells us in verse 46 that at the end of the three hours of darkness, at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We know that God could never ultimately forsake his beloved son. And the father was never more pleased in the obedience of his son than when he laid down his life for sinners. But having the curse of our sin upon him, there was such a loss of the felt favor and presence of God that Jesus spoke these words. The love of the Father, though never fully withdrawn from him, the love of the Father was hidden for a time. And Jesus' cry here shows how great our sin is and how deep his anguish was that the Son of God had to suffer in this way. Here is something that he had never known before. He had always known intimate fellowship and communion with the Father, and the Father had always said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
But now, under the curse and the darkness of sin, Jesus cries, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The outer darkness of the sun was only a sign of the inner darkness that Jesus felt in his own soul. And throughout these hours of terrible abandonment, there was only one thing that Jesus could hold on to. Under the curse, under the wrath of God, only one thing that gave him strength to endure, only one thing that gave him hope to continue, and that was his faith, his confidence, his trust in God, his heavenly Father. Through the dreadful darkness of those hours, Jesus could still say, I will put my trust in him. And he still believed in the promises of God, every word of promise that the Father had given to him would be fulfilled. The Father abandoned his Son under his wrath that he might embrace us as sinners in his love. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. John Flavel wrote of these three hours, he said, Jesus had nothing else now but his Father's covenant and the promise and his promise to hang upon. Jesus endured to the very end as the perfect man of faith. As we continue our study tonight, there is one aspect of the faith of Jesus at the cross that we want to consider tonight, and it is Jesus' faith in the righteous character of his heavenly Father. Jesus' faith in the righteous character of his heavenly Father. We see this faith being lived out first in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Jesus himself here is prophesying of his coming life before his incarnation and he says that every morning and day by day, his heavenly father will awaken him and will teach him and will give to him a tongue of wisdom and comfort so that he is able to sustain the weary and suffering, his weary and suffering brethren on earth with a word. Just as every word of encouragement to our weary souls must come through the promises of Scripture, so the teaching of Jesus by his heavenly Father had to come to him through the Holy Scriptures. My Father awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. He teaches me day after day his will for me from the Scriptures 
In the beginning of verse 5, he says, The Lord God has opened my ear. He has opened my ear, and he has opened my mind. My heavenly Father has to understand his will for me as the Savior. And then he says, And I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. As I learned from Holy Scripture, his word morning by morning, and I came to see increasingly the suffering that it would bring me into my, my Father's will. I did not shrink back from any of my Father's will. I was never displeasing to him. Verse 6, he said, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. All of these words literally fulfilled in the gospel records when Jesus was arrested and brought before Pontius Pilate and the Roman soldiers for his crucifixion. Matthew tells us in chapter 26 and verse 66, then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said to him, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? And having scourged Jesus, Pilate delivered him to be crucified. His humiliation, his suffering here, as he approached the cross, and he gave him, the question is, what gave him the strength to endure and the will to bear up under his sufferings? And the answer is found in verse 7, in his faith and confidence in his heavenly Father, who he speaks of now in verse 7. He says, for the Lord God helps me. My heavenly Father, he says, has never left me. He is always with me. He upholds me and comforts me and strengthens me. The Lord God helps me, therefore, he says, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face, my face like a flint. I have determined that I must accomplish my Father's will. No matter what price I may have to pay and the sufferings that I will endure, I will set my face like a flint and accomplish my Father's will in the work of salvation. Luke tells us in his gospel, in chapter 9 and verse 51, that it came about that when the days were approaching for his ascension, referring to his death and his resurrection after the cross, that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face like a flint to accomplish the Father's will. And then he says at the end of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8, he says, and I know, I know that I shall not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is with me. To vindicate, to vindicate here is to justify. He who vindicates me is he who justifies me and proves me to be right. It was Jesus' faith in the righteous character of his heavenly Father that his heavenly Father would justify him. His heavenly Father would vindicate him. He was the Holy One of God. He had no sin. He had done no wrong. His suffering, 
His suffering was the greatest injustice the world has ever seen. The Holy One of God is pure. He is loving. He only does, he has only done what is good and right. And all men should treat him with favor and love and adoration. And yet he suffers, he suffers for sins that he has not committed. He has suffering for the sins of others. But in his suffering, he suffered by faith, believing in the righteous character of God, that the judge of all the earth will do what is right, and that he will deal with every injustice, and he will recompense every evil that has been done. He says, I know. He says, this is one thing I know that I am certain of, that in the end, in the end, when my sufferings are over, my Father in heaven, he will prove who I am as the Son of God, and I will not be ashamed. He will vindicate me, justify me, and he will do so in a most glorious way. He will raise me up from my humiliation. He will exalt me back to the highest place of glory and honor in heaven. And all my enemies will be under my feet, and no one will be able to contend or stand against me, which is what he says now in verse 8 and into verse 9. He says, he who vindicates me is near. Who, he says, who, after my father vindicates me and exalts me again, who will, who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? My heavenly Father, he says, will vindicate me in such a way that there will never be anyone who will ever condemn me. And I will live forever on my throne of glory and majesty, and my enemies will be crushed and they will perish. As he says the end of verse 9, Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. So here we see in this description of the sufferings of Christ as he comes to the cross, his faith in the righteous character of his heavenly Father, that his heavenly Father will vindicate him, that his heavenly Father will justify him after the cross, and will honor him and exalt him. Jesus' faith in, his, in the righteous character of his heavenly Father. We see the same thing again in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 and verses 22 and 23. Verse 22, Peter says of Christ, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. 
While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Verse 22 is a summary of the entire life of Jesus, the sinlessness of Jesus. The words come from Isaiah 53 and verse 9. He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. Jesus affirmed his own sinlessness. Himself in John 8 and verse 29, he said, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26 tells us that he was holy, innocent, undefiled, and separated from sinners. John tells us in 1 John 3 and verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there was no sin. Peter emphasizes the sinlessness of his words. And the sinlessness of his life and his words in this passage extend even to the cross, where at the cross there was the greatest pressure for him to commit sins and to speak evil as he endured the mockery of sinners against him. But it still remained true. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit or any evil found in his mouth. Verse 23 tells us how Jesus responded to the injustice of the cross. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats. Roman soldiers scourged him. They spat upon him and beat him with fists in the face. They stripped him of his clothing and put a crown of thorns on his head and nailed him to a cross in a crucifixion. And as he suffered upon the cross and the angry multitude hurled their abuse at him, there was not a single word of vengeance against them. Not a single threat came from Jesus against them in return. His only words in regard to those who committed evil against him were those when he was crucified and he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. The natural response of men when under such injustice is to lash out and to return insult for insult and evil for evil. Or to threaten some future revenge so to create at least some anxiety in one's enemies of what may come upon them. But there was no such response from Jesus. And throughout the entire ordeal of the cross, Jesus patiently and calmly endured his sufferings. And then Peter tells us how he was able to do so. At the end of verse 23, this is how he was able to 
respond in this patient and calm way because he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Two things we may think of here that Jesus knew by faith as he suffered upon the cross. The first is the sovereignty of God over all things that take place. That God is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over the sufferings of his people. And he was sovereign even over the sufferings of his beloved son upon the cross. Whatever evil men may do, he is still the God of absolute sovereignty and he is still working the counsel, working all things after the counsel of his eternal will. The Father predestined the cross. The Father had written of the cross in the scriptures and Jesus could say of his cross that all things that were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The God of sovereignty was still ruling over the evils of the cross. The second thing Jesus knew by faith was that God was the righteous judge who will bring about perfect justice over all things in the end. Many injustices are committed in this world, and many of them appear at least to be in this present world unpunished. But such will be true only for a little while longer. Until the end, when God the righteous judge will take every wrong and make it right. And whatever evil has been committed, he will deal with it in his perfect justice and righteousness. Either every wrong will be punished by him, or it will be forgiven because the punishment was willingly taken by Jesus at the cross. Jesus, we know from the temptations, he knew the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4. He reads, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Psalm 19 and verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. So Jesus knew his heavenly father to be the righteous judge of all the earth. And so he could continue to entrust himself. He kept entrusting himself continuously to his heavenly father as he suffered on the cross knowing that his father would judge all things righteously in the end. I will put my trust in him, he said, before he came into the world. And from Psalm 22 and verse 9, he said, Thou dost make me trust when upon my mother's breast, and I have lived all my life in trust of my heavenly father and in faith in you and now I come to the cross and I will still put my trust in you 
as you are pleased to crush me and put me to grief and place the curse of your law upon me and pierce me through for the transgressions of my people and as all the darkness of your wrath covers me I will still put my trust in you as the righteous judge of all things. I will leave the outcome in the hands of my heavenly Father. All my sufferings I know. He will count them and he will do what is good and right in his sight. His ways are always just and he is always righteous and true and he will bring about perfect justice in regard to everything that is taking place in my agony and my suffering upon the cross. He was the Son of God with power. He could have destroyed his enemies in a moment from the cross. But as a man he knew, it was his heavenly Father's will for him to lay down his life, a ransom for many, and so Jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously his faith in the righteous character of his heavenly father. Isaiah 53, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself by faith to him who judges righteously. And in all of this, Jesus gives us an example to follow. As Peter tells us back up at the end of verse 21, he says that in this, in his sufferings, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So that when we are wronged and we are unjustly treated and we are persecuted and spoken evil of, that we do not take vengeance into our own hands, that we do not revile and utter threats back against our enemies in return. And when it is our Father's will, we patiently and calmly endure our sufferings in following the example of Jesus. But there is more in this phrase that he kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. Because Jesus in his death upon the cross, he was not entrusting himself to the mercy of God as we do. He was entrusting himself to the pure mercy, to the pure justice of God. He hung upon the cross, holy, innocent, undefiled, and there was no sin in him, and he had fulfilled his father's law in every jot and tittle, a life of perfect righteousness was the life of Jesus. And he was suffering the just for the unjust. And at the cross, 
Jesus presented himself before God the Father as the holy and pure lamb, unblemished, spotless in his precious blood. And he was entrusting himself to the justice of God, to him who judges righteously. That in due time, his heavenly father would vindicate him because of his perfect life of righteousness. His father would reward his obedience to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And the father would give to him the everlasting kingdom, glory, dominion, and people from every nation. Jesus continued to entrust himself to God who judges according to the justice of his law. We see the requirements of the law in a passage we'll look at briefly back in the book of Leviticus and chapter 18. Leviticus 18 and verse 5. Moses writes, So you shall keep, or God says through Moses, you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. The law says, and God promises here, that the man who keeps his law, his statutes perfectly, he will live an irrevocable principle of the law of God's justice, that it cuts both ways. He who disobeys the law, he who violates the law in the slightest possible way, he brings a curse upon himself. But if any man, he says, if a man keeps the law perfectly, if he abides by all things that are written in the law, to do them, then he will live and he will have eternal life. You shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which if a man do so, a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. But we know that no one has ever kept the law of God perfectly. No one has ever or ever can merit eternal life by the keeping of the law no mere man could ever do so. The soul that sins shall die, God says. The wages of sin is death. And no man living is righteous. And every man sins. And sin and death have come into the world. And death has spread to all men because all sin. But yet it still remains true. It still remains true. The irrevocable principle of God's justice according to his law that if a man lives perfectly according to that law in every way and abides by everything that it says, that man shall live, is the promise of God. We see the same principle in the New Testament in Luke chapter 10. We'll turn there for a moment in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. And we read verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put 
him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. In verse 25, the man came to him with a question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus knew the man to be self-righteous, one who thought that he could keep the law perfectly. And so Jesus asked him, what does the law say to you? And the man answered correctly in verse 27, as he quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And then Jesus said to him at the end of verse 28, do this, do this, and you will live. Jesus knew no man could ever keep the law perfectly and earn eternal life by his own merit. Jesus spoke this way to convince this man of his own sin and to bring him to repentance and to the Savior. But in verse 27, he does tell us the requirements of the law. And the requirements of the law are not just outward, but they are inward. And they are not just for a moment, but they are for all of life. A law of love. And God requires perfect love to himself in all the heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love to one's fellow man. If someone were to keep the law outwardly, if such a thing were even possible, it would never be sufficient to satisfy the justice of God and the law. Because the only obedience that is pleasing to God must be one that comes from love to him from the heart. A love from all of one's heart and all of one's soul and all of one's strength and all of one's mind. The keeping of the law that pleases and satisfies the justice of God must be inward in one's entire being a perpetual, continual, perfect love of God. And from that love of the heart comes all of the outward obedience and anything less than that love and that obedience brings the curse upon any man. There was only one man. There was only one man who could ever keep the law in this way. And blessed be God, he is our Lord Jesus Christ. The man of perfect obedience to the law. And that's how he came to the cross. As he presented himself upon the cross before the justice of God and entrusting himself to the God of perfect justice to judge him righteously as the perfect man upon that cross. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 10 
I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, and I give to every man according to his ways and according to the results of his deeds. And that's what happened at the cross. And that's what Jesus was entrusting himself to, that his heavenly Father who searches every heart would look into his soul and find only love for him from all his heart and soul and strength and mind. And there would not be the least spot or stain of any corruption of sin, but only a holy and pure sacrifice to his heavenly Father. And by his death upon the cross, Jesus would merit salvation. He would merit all the blessings of his kingdom. He would merit eternal life for himself, a resurrection and an exaltation into the glory of his kingdom. And he would merit it not just for himself, but for all his people who would believe in him for salvation. Jesus died in faith in the righteous character of God and kept entrusting himself to the justice of God. It would be unjust for God to not fully recompense the perfect life and death of his beloved son. For all the love that he showed to his name, for all the glory that he brought to his heavenly father, the upholding of his father's law, the obedience to his father in all things. This is my beloved son, said the father, in whom I am well pleased. And I must give him glory and honor and a kingdom that I have promised him. The justice of God required a full recompense and all the promises of eternal life and glory to his kingdom. You and I as sinners, we can only come to God in one way, the way of mercy. There is no other way for us. We could not dare to stand before him in any other way than the way of mercy. He is a consuming fire that would consume us instantly if we ever appeared before him in any other way. Only by the way of mercy that Jesus has opened up for us, only by the mercy that has come to us by his blood, by his purification, by which he has cleansed us of all sin, there is no other way for us to ever approach the living God. The foundation of his throne is righteousness and justice and fire goes out before him and consumes his adversary. There is only one man who can approach God in the way of justice, in the way of the fulfillment, the perfect fulfillment of his law. And he is Jesus Christ. And he has done so. And he has finished his work in the death of the cross. We trust in God's justification, which comes to us by the righteousness of Christ, freely given to us. Jesus trusted in God's justification that came only by the perfect obedience to his law and the perfect justice of God in honoring his perfect righteousness. 
We close with the words of Luke found in Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And verse 44. Through 46. And it was now about the sixth hour. And darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And the sun became obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Luke tells us here the dying words of Jesus as he cried out with a loud voice from the cross, Father, into thy hands. I commit my spirit. Words of faith and confidence in the love of God and in his heavenly Father. The final act of Jesus entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. His soul was not taken from him. He voluntarily gave up his spirit. He had authority to lay his life down and he had authority to take it up again. God was his heavenly father, and into his father's hands he could commit his spirit. And God has become our father through Jesus Christ. And he has loved us through his beloved son, and he continues to love us, and he will love us to the end. And we are in the father's hands and there is no one who can snatch us out of the Father's hands. And we may speak the same words as Jesus. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And we should say the same thing every day. Father, my times are in your hands. And I commit my will and all things into your hands. So that when we come to the last hour, we may speak the same thing that Jesus spoke here. And many saints have spoken these very same words that Jesus did here down through the centuries of the church. Father, into thy hands, I trust you and your righteous character, and I trust your beloved Son. Father, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanksgiving and we give you praise for your beloved Son, for his life of faith and trust and confidence in you, that even to the death of the cross, he continued to entrust himself to you as the righteous judge. And so, our Father, we pray that you would give us grace that we need that we would follow his example and walk in his ways. We ask that you would bless the Lord's Supper tonight as we partake of the bread and the cup. We pray, Lord Jesus, send your Holy Spirit to help us to receive by faith these elements that we may rejoice in your broken body and we may be glad that you have been so merciful and loving to us to shed your blood to take away our sins. You are our only hope. Help us and bless now as we look to you 
And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.